The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, come up with your own friggin' joke. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 438 with guest Pat Hines, recorded live Friday, April 10th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's looking forward to the video version of Mondays. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we are sitting here across from each other at Pop Studios in New London, Connecticut. Welcome to my town, Richard. I'm so glad to be here and sit across the booth from you. It's such a... You know, normally we do this totally blind. We found like we're in the same room, but we really aren't. Now we finally are. We're not even compensating for the delay of the phone lines here. I mean, it's this is the speed of light we're yeah, talking. We're very spoiled. Very, speed very spoiled. of electrons. Hey, uh, you know, I was uh, sitting down at the bar and uh, last night, and uh, this friend of mine comes up to me who's you know aging a little bit, and he says he's looking at this piece of mail, and I said, "What is that?" And he goes, "Oh, it's it's a." Uh, I don't know what it, I don't know what it is. Can you read this to me? And I said, "Ah, this is an appointment for your vision and hearing test." And he goes, "What? That's all you got, huh? What? I fly across the continent. <laughs> Come and sit in a booth with you. That's what you've got. <laughs> Come on, that's pretty good. <laughs> all right, let's get into better know framework. Love those tunes up close, man. What? <laughs> all right, what do you got? Okay, so Better Know Framework is a uh, little spot on the show where I shine a little flashlight on a dark, hidden corner of the .NET Framework somewhere because there's so many things to know. And uh, since people listen to us week after week, by osmosis, some of these things will sink in. It's not training. Uh, all I'm doing is calling your attention to something that's there. 
So we've been talking about the system.windows.controls namespace, which is where all the WPF and Silverlight controls are, right? Right. So uh, today we're going to talk about the calendar control. That's right. Did you know that there is a WPF calendar? I did not know. Tell me about it. Well, of course there has to be a calendar. And a, well, that's all there is. It represents a control that enables a user to select a date by using a visual calendar display. It's the same kind of thing that you would expect to see, you know, like if you're used to working with the ASP.NET yep. calendar, it's the same idea. And uh, there it is. Uh, let me see what the remarks say here. Uh, a calendar control can be used on its own or as a drop-down part of a date picker control. Uh, it displays either the days of a month, the months of a year, or the years of a decade, depending on the value of the display mode property. When displaying the days of the month, the user can select a date, a range of dates, or multiple ranges of dates. These are just the little things that you get with you know the rich user uh, experience of WPF Silverlight instead of uh, you know the the clunky awkwardness of ASP.NET. Right. So there you go. Awesome. There's more stuff, but I think it's enough to know that there is such a thing as a date control or a calendar control in WPF. Yep. Built right in. Built right in. So you got an email for us, Richard. I do indeed. Since it's Thursday, I can read a little bit of an indulgent email, although I found this one particularly funny. Okay. Uh, Dear Carl and Richard, I have been promising myself I would email you guys and thank you for the great job you're doing and how it has revolutionized my business. Oh, I saw this. Yes. Just over three years ago, I put everything on hold, including my business and programming career, to do service for my church as a missionary. Good for you. It was something I really wanted to do, but it meant that I had limited access to a PC. And when I mean limited... I mean, I checked my email for an hour once a week for a period of two years. Painful. That's incredible. I can't imagine. I, doing I that. can't imagine. <laughs> this guy did not have a blackberry. No, he... just trying to get my head around that. <laughs> I won't lie to you. It was tough, especially since just before I began the two-year stint, I had just figured out how to solve a programming problem that I've been bashing my head on for years, and then I ran out of time to code it before I left. Wow. You think he took a break? While he was bashing his head for years? Yeah, his head was a little sore. Yeah. I'm just saying. Well, the two years finished and I started to relearn stuff. Things were ticking along slowly until about a month or so ago I discovered your site and I thought, hey, maybe I will listen to one of these podcasts. Since then, I've been hooked. After listening to a few shows, I came on the realization that I have two years of technology to catch up on, and your show is the perfect medium for doing this. That's great. I originally started listening from the beginning of the archives in show 222, but soon worked out that, that two new shows every week, it would take me several months to get up to date. So I revised my strategy, and now I listen to two new shows every week, and I'm averaging a legacy show every day. That's wild. I can't imagine listening to that much Carl and Richard. Uh, that, yeah, I don't think I could listen to myself that much. Right now he's at show 260. So he's still got 170 shows to go. That man deserves a mug. Uh, yeah, Absolutely. Anyhow, a few weeks ago, I was listening to a legacy show where Carl made the comment saying, who doesn't use source control nowadays? Yeah. And I was like, what the heck is source control? <laughs> well, since I am the boss, I figured maybe it would be useful and I should check it out. And after two days of using SVN, I couldn't believe we never used it before. Yeah. Then last week, I was listening to another legacy show where you were quoted on how few companies do unit testing. And again, I was like, what's that? Now I have checked the technology out, and I can't believe how useful it is and what an idiot I've been for not finding out about stuff like this before. And these are just two examples of many. So basically, in the space of literally weeks of your show, it has helped me remove several major headaches I used to experience in our development cycle before I went on hiatus. And now I've increased my business productivity tenfold. 
Wow. Thank you for your great work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Kind regards, Mark Pearl, and there's a P.S. Mm. Now, I know I owe you guys already, but if I was able to get some swag that I could wear or use around the office, you would not only make my week, but also contribute to making several other programmers that I work with extremely jealous. You know what? Yeah, I think he should have something to wear and something to drink coffee I out of. totally agree. Yeah. And Maybe two mugs, one for him and one for his favorite uh, yeah, employee. One, yeah, when they, they can rotate. The employee yeah. of the month can get to use the other .NET Rocks And a t-shirt. Month. I will send that information to the gnomes at .NET Rocks, and we'll get that out to you right away. Absolutely. Mark, thanks so much for your great email. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas, shows you'd like to see, criticisms, or you'd just like us to talk less. That's right. Send us an email, <laughs> .NET Rocks at franklins.net. We'll read a flame if it's good enough. Absolutely. If it makes us laugh, you got it. Yeah, anything is possible. <laughs> hey, do you remember Show 200? Yes, I do remember Show 200. It was the quiz shows, that, you know, yeah. and all of the, the previous hosts were together. So we've done so many shows now that uh, the 100 marks uh, seem to be meaning less and less to us, but... The the 100th show was a like a fun look back. We had we had some fun with the people that were on it and we also looked back and uh listened to some bits from critical shows. Show 200 was a quiz show. Show 300 I interviewed you and show 400 was a dismal failure. Yeah, Don't was, listen to it. Yeah, drunk in a bar in Montreal. Drunk in a bar in Montreal. You know this year we get show 500. Show 500 we're actually going to throw a party. Yeah, I think we need to throw a party. Yeah, we're going to throw a party. I think we'll be in Las Vegas, but yeah. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, during show 200, we did this thing that Richard and I do called the 64-bit question. It's a .NET Rocks quiz show. Uh, Rory Blythe was here. Mark Dunn was here. Richard, of course, was here. Mark Miller was here. And uh, Jeff Maciolik was here. And we all did this quiz show. Well, we we got that on video. And we just released it. So it's up on the .NET Rocks website. Check it out. It's a, it's in silver light, but it's your standard uh, DV format. Well, and I watched all the way through... Because uh, I'd totally forgotten about it. I mean, yeah. it was a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. It was very funny. It was 2006, October to be exact. And uh, TechEd. Indeed, TechEd, the TechEd sweepstakes is on. So what this is all about, of course, is TechEd 2009 North America is going to be May 11th through the 15th. Microsoft came to us and said, how can we get the word out about TechEd? And we said, why? We will talk about it. Of course, we're going to not just talk about it. We're going to give away a ticket. Which is what we like to do, right, Richard? Absolutely is what we like to do. Yeah, we like to send some lucky winner of our sweepstakes a ticket, hotel, and airfare. Kind of just like, you know, the royal treatment. All expenses are paid. Well, except your bar tab. Yes. And your food and all that stuff. Because goodness knows if they were paying my bar tab, that'd be the end of that show. (laughs) I was going to say the big expenses are paid, but, you know, the bar (laughs) tab is questionable. Um, So here's what you do. Go to uh, .netrocks.com. There's a nice green sticker over on the right that says the TechEd 2009 sweepstakes. Click on that, and then you need to uh, register with us. Once you register, every week, every Tuesday, we're going to ask a question, a trivia question from the a previous show. And if you're a listener, you know, you've been listening to the shows, you should have no trouble answering the question. Uh, every week, we're going to pull a winner from the correct answers. And we're going to give that person a .NET Rocks mug. Then those weekly winners uh, will be in a drawing on April 30th for the grand prize. 
And the grand prize is that free ride to TechEd. You're going to see us. We'll be all over TechEd this oh, year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we will. We'll be doing it. We'll, we might be doing the 64-bit question live. I'm not sure about that. I'm not still not sure. We're definitely doing Speaker Idol. Definitely doing Speaker Idol, which is a great contest in which uh, presenters get five minutes to show their stuff, to do a presentation, impress the judges, and then uh, we pick a winner. And by the way, I'm still recruiting contestants for Speaker Idol. So if, you've, if you're going to TechEd US... You're not a speaker. And you've never spoken at a tech ed before. Right. Ever. But you're an experienced speaker. I want experienced speakers. I just want guys who haven't spoken to tech ed. Right. They can have done hands-on labs. They can have been in the Ask the Experts. They can do any of those things, but they haven't got a breakout session. Because getting a breakout session in tech ed is the hard part. Well, what do they win if they become the person who If you win Speaker Idol, and that means you give a five-minute presentation, you win your heat, you go to the finals, you win the finals, you get the full ride. So you get to be a speaker at tech ed in 2010. That is... Unbelievable, because that's a coveted slot. It's incredibly hard to get, and that's really how Speaker Idol came about, was yep. this recognition it was so hard to become a speaker at Tech Ed. And so we've had some great winners. Steve Smith was a winner. That's right. Right? Yeah, Keith Meyer won. Rhonda Layfield Rhonda won. Rhonda Layfield. The really talented speakers that had never been able to get to speak at Tech Ed and came on the contest, won, and, uh, and are now Tech Ed speakers. Now I think Rhonda Layfield, isn't she, like, headlining or something? I mean, I, I, I went to the Tech Ed website, and you know how they have pictures of the people who are doing... Yeah, sessions and stuff, and she was up there. Yeah, absolutely. She, yeah, she was the winner from last year. So isn't that great? It's awesome, I mean, and it's a ton of fun for us to just find these new folks. So uh, All right. s- again, send us an email dot net rocks at franklins dot net if you'd like to participate in Speaker Idol. Absolutely. Okay, now it's time to talk to Mr. Pat Hines. Patrick Hines was the first guest on dot net rocks. He was the first guest on Mondays, and he was the first guest on Run As Radio. Indeed. And he's been on our show. The last time you were on, Pat, I think was show 167, which was a security update. Let me just read uh, your bio here, Pat, a little bit. Uh, Pat Hines is a Microsoft Regional Director, MCSD, MCSE plus I, MCDBA, MCP plus Site Builder and MCT. And those are just like five or six of his certifications. He's got something like 75. How many do you have, Pat? Uh, only 55, but I stopped about seven years ago. Good Lord. <laughs> and the chief, the chief tech, I gave it up. The chief technology officer for critical sites. Named by Microsoft as a regional director for Boston, he's been recognized as a leader in the technology field. He's one of the few certified trainers in New England for site server. An expert on Microsoft technology and experience with other technologies as well. WebSphere, Sybase, Perl, Java, Unix, NetWare, C++, etc. Patrick previously taught freelance software development and network architecture. He's been a successful contractor who enjoyed mastering difficult troubleshooting assignments. A graduate of West Point and a Gulf War veteran, Patrick brings an uncommon level of dedication to his leadership role at Critical Sites. He has experience in addressing business challenges with blended IT solutions involving leading-edge database web, and hardware systems. In spite of the demands of his management role at Critical Sites, Patrick stays technical and in the trenches, acting as project manager and or developer engineer on selected projects throughout the year. And might we also add to this bio that you are like Mr. Security. I'm a security MVP now, and, and that is a dated, uh, a dated bio and a bit long from what I just heard. Yeah. Well, we said, you know, Pat, uh, you know, what What do you want us to say about you? And he, he said, yeah, just use the bio from the last one. But that was A 2006, my friend. Well, Site Server was significant. Yeah, it yeah. was. Back Actually, then. it wasn't even significant then. So yeah, I, I'm outdated. That's, but that's okay. It's mostly the same stuff. So you're security MVP. Yes. 
Dwayne Laflotte and I both work at Critical Sites. Um, we're developer security MVPs. We do a lot of security audits, helping companies understand what the security threats are. And we're also branching out, or I'm branching out now into helping companies with business problems, with projects, how to keep them from failing, that kind of thing, too. Yeah, and that's that's uh, on everybody's mind right now. It's got to be. Um, I've seen some uh, stories to the effect that the uh, technology sector is actually weathering the financial storm here and holding fast. It's not... Um, well, it's not falling apart like retail's falling apart like manufacturing seems to be. What's your what's your take on this whole thing? Um, so my sources say that we're we're not out of the woods yet. There's um, I speak at the code camps and uh, I go to TechEd and, and the other events, but I try to keep my ear the the ground pretty well. Um, it sounds like there's still going to be a, a few layoffs in the IT sector that we haven't seen yet. Um, where I think layoffs in other sectors have have started to abate. I think IT organizations in Silicon Valley and around are going to probably take one more stab at l- allowing the economy to be blamed for them trimming things a little bit. Um, it does seem to be a convenient excuse, doesn't it? It certainly is. Well, you know, it, the, you can follow Jack Welch's advice and just always fire the lowest 10% every year, or you can let the economy be the bad guy. Well, and it, I also think that it's not just that people are exploiting this opportunity, but that for the past couple of years, things have been going so fast, people took their eye off the bottom line. They were focusing on the top line, more sales, more markets, right. more products. And so in a reflective moment, when you're not so quite frantically trying to sell, you go back and look at the bottom line and go, wow, we're doing some dumb stuff. Right. Or there's a few people around the office, you look at them and go, what is it what you, do? you do? Exactly. What do you do? <laughs> why don't you? And why don't you go do it somewhere you, else? You should learn to recognize that look. Yeah. If somebody gives you that look, you may want to go home and rethink your life. I, I wonder what the economy would look like if people actually didn't lose sight of these things, and we could just keep working without the blinders on. It seems like the dot bomb. We had the same result. And I also think it's one of the reasons IT guys are so jumpy. Is that the last major downturn was an IT centric downturn, and this yeah. time it's not. Yeah, it, January, February, and March were were not banner months. Uh, software companies, um, I have the advantage that most of my customers, I get to see how they're doing. So I've got a lot of oversight into into the market in general, a lot of ISVs, uh, a lot of banks. But in the ISV side of things, what we're seeing is almost no sales in January and February. You could call them like black holes. Right. And then pent-up demand, if, if you had a product that actually – had a business case, and and someone actually could say, yeah, we can't just forget about this. Yes. Then the March was actually pretty good because you had a whole quarter worth of pent up demand, and whatever was going to land landed in March. It was almost and it was almost like a panic. You've waited right. too long. You've got to move quickly now, and so right. you had this sort of surge sale. And people were getting discounts because it's like buying a car now. So I oh I can get the what if I buy the software before the end of March? Well, in that case, I'll give you a discount and you know tickets to this. And it, it was kind of a it was definitely a buyer's market even in the software industry. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, consulting not so much. It's hard to it's hard to deeply deeply discount consulting, but yeah. we saw a little of that too. Yeah. Then we're now into April and and things are picking up a little bit because there's a little bit of a of a of a uptick in the economy. The Dow hasn't been going down um, into the sewer. It's back over eight thousand again. Um, and, and even though peop- a lot of people don't pay attention to that, it, it's worth a techie's while to watch the Dow because it's a bellwether for the decision makers, the sure. people who are spending the money. They watch the Dow as if it's a, a heart rate monitor. And, and, and there is some merit to that. I mean, not every business reflects that tightly on that. Well, it's but- taught in MBA school, so that 
the people who make the decisions on the money, that's what they're doing, and that's who you have to keep tabs on. Absolutely. Well, and, and and I think there's a big, the, you know, things are starting to function. Pieces of this are working, and and uh, people are getting, trying to get work done. They bit by bit, as some corporate reports come out, and they're all not doom and gloom. You know, if you're not in the auto sector or the finance sector, you're you're probably okay. Right. Well, there's a huge amount of money. There's a huge amount of pent up money, and and things are. The big thing is, you have to be in a place that's not whimsical. Right. In a place that actually adds value. If you have an ROI, you're in. You're going to survive if you if you don't do anything stupid. And I did get a sense that it's, even in the technical field, we took our eye off the ball of are we actually providing uh, value to our company? We were enjoying our technology, sort of exploring and and indulgence even. And now they sort of turned back to back to that bottom line thing. How are you making the company better? Yeah, and that's the kind of you know feast and famine. We were in a feast environment. People thought they had the luxury of time and energy to, to focus on things like social networking. And, and social networking, I'm not bashing it. It's just that it's hard to make a, a pitch that we need a Facebook page when you're, you know, GM. Yeah. By the way, um, you know, I, I don't. It, I think it's kind of difficult for people uh, in the United States, anyway, and maybe around the world, but to wrap their minds around what actually happened in this recession. You know, with the different stimuluses that that. Uh, that, that that caused this downturn. And I got to tell you, one of the best explanations I heard was on a show uh, on NPR called This American Life. And uh, the name of the show was The Giant Pool of Money. And the, the producer of that show actually sat down and explained things in a very, very easy to understand way. And I shrinksterized that at shrinkster.com slash 15YH. One five Y H. So, uh, if you, I know you obviously like listening to the radio because you're listening to us. So go check that out if you're if you're not sure. But no, what he he what he basically talked about was the mortgage crisis and how you know the the he talked about the giant pool of money being the the trillions and trillions of dollars all around the world that that people have to invest and companies have to invest and it needs to go somewhere all the time. It needs to be somewhere. People want more than their two percent. That their savings account gives them, right? I don't know. The last quarter doesn't really bear that up. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they want more. So uh, the mortgages, the mortgage companies were were taking, were creating funds. They were buying up mortgages and from banks because the the banks are the ones that gave the mortgages. These mortgage companies that trade mortgages are the Wall Street firms, right? So they would get you know, as many as they could, and then they would sell that as a fund, and they would sell shares of that to to other people. And, of course, the return was great because these are mortgages. Those checks are coming in all the time, right? Yeah, you're talking about derivatives now. Yeah. And that's, that's where leverage comes in. That's, that's where, where leverage comes in. So basically this giant pool of money sunk trillions of dollars into uh, these mortgage account, these, these sort of these funds, and they wanted more. And there wasn't enough real mortgages out there to – to uh, provide the demand, to, to provide the supply for their demand. Yeah, it was, so it they was, started laxing the rules on who could get a mortgage. Oh, well, now you don't have to have a job. You just got to say you have a job. You, you know, they're, they're, they came up with all sorts of crazy uh, types of mortgages where you just had to, they basically were encouraging people to lie. You, you know that the pendulum has swung so far that I was talking to a mortgage guy yesterday, uh, a guy I've known for years who I did my first refi with back um, probably 10 years ago. 
And he said that if you own a multifamily home, whether even if it's a duplex and you live on one side and your, your parents live on the other, they're assessing, I believe that's a 1% penalty on the loan. Wow. And if you take any cash out, it's a 0.75% penalty on the loan. Wow. So you, they're basically trying to keep people with, you know, who want cash out or who, are, who they perceive as having um, investment properties. Any multifamily is considered an investment property. And condos are also getting penalized in this as well. And so the, it's, the pendulum has slid very far back the other way. Yeah, well, to, to wrap up the story, um, what happens when people can't pay their mortgages and everybody's counting on that is uh, those those not only those funds go down and people lose their money, but the insurance that that uh, the mortgage insurance that you know AIG provided, for example, they would these companies would go and say, hey, I have this piece of this fund, can you give me mortgage insurance on that? You know, so the insurance, so these mortgages were being insured multiple times if you think about the slices of of mortgages and those shares of those funds that were insured with mortgage insurance and of course when that tanks all of those people say okay i want my money aig's out of money cuz they can't they can't pay off all at once yeah it's that's uh, essentially what happens so it, all of this investment money all around the world needs to find a place to go so there is still a lot of money out there looking for a place to go but it's all cautious money but it's very they're being they're holding on to it that's right and so the opportunity here and that, and that's i think what I, if you guys don't mind i'd like to discuss a little bit is yeah if you can show that you're a good bet like the mortgages, as a technologist or as a project, you're going to get funded. You're going get, to get, get the green light to go forward. And one of the things a lot of people don't realize is we're still, the statistics I've seen recently, we're still averaging around 50% of, of technical projects fail. Right. Now, if you look at the numbers overseas, offshoring, because of the challenges of communication, and, and some people certainly have different opinions on that, we can talk about that, but those fail on average 60% of the time. Wow. But they're they're cheap, so some people were willing to try twice. I can't believe we still can't build software more reliably. Well, agile agile technologies, agile um, methodologies like Scrum and, and and those kinds of things do have a better track record. They're about seventy percent, but there's still a third of the projects failing. And I, and I would wonder if that improved percentage has more to do with that methodology being newer, and so the people who are embracing it tend to be more interested or dedicated to building software successfully. I think that's Maybe. a part of it, but I also think that a big part of the of the Scrum and other methodologies, agile development, is communication. Right. Well, they just work. Um, you know, uh, test-driven development, these agile methodologies, uh, continuous integration, they work. They produce results. Well, they produce results, but... but Therein is the, the rub. Most of the, about a third of all the projects I've seen fail, and, and I got a little bit of a unique perspective. You guys probably do as well because you talk to so many people. But because I'm involved in a production commercial software company, NTP Software, and a consulting company specifying specifically on security critical sites, I get to see the insides of a lot of organizations and the insides of a lot of projects. And I also get called in quite often when things are in trouble. Right. They wouldn't so, call you if they weren't in trouble, right? Uh, well, they might call for the software company, and I, I, I do some work with architectural design and, and large deployments there, because I do have the networking side as well. Right. But when they're typically calling critical sites, they're either very paranoid and they're regular customers, or they're, they're in deep trouble and they need help. 
Right. Yeah. So a lot of times the, the technology isn't the problem most of the time. Occasionally it is. Sometimes somebody picks the wrong thing or someone will try to go with too cutting edge, not realizing what they're getting in for. They'll use estimates um, for, for Silverlight with a, a VB programmer um, as, as if they were writing VB code, that kind right. of thing. Yeah. But most of it has to do with setting expectations and, and making sure that everybody understands what you're building. Yeah. Um, I, I've seen back in the early days, back when the dot-com boom was in full swing, we had a customer, no names, um, <laughs> who we were doing PDF integration for information um, that was under HIPAA compliance. That's about all I can say. Right. And because of the library we chose, or they chose, we gave them a choice of three libraries to choose from. We integrated the one they picked based on features and functionality. We implemented it, and it triggered a security warning, a dialogue on the browser. I think it was IE5, maybe 4, something like that. But it was just a warning. It was just a warning. It was just a little thing. And the, the CEO saw the demo. It was like our third demo. We were just about to finish the project, and he flipped. Absolutely lost it because he said this is unacceptable. And we said, well, if the browser has this setting set, which is not a default setting, but if they set that setting, that, that warning goes away. And it was unacceptable. Mm. So we had to negotiate our way out of the project near the end right. in order to, to save it. And we didn't save it. I, I still consider it a failed project, even though they didn't sue us and, and we didn't, you know, we lost some money, but not a ton. But there's nothing wrong with the technology. Everything worked. The, the customer's expectation was that we would fix Internet Explorer, and we couldn't. Right, right, yeah. Um, well, we, we really could. We actually, what we actually did was we wrote a hack that allowed a script to change the setting on the browser, but, but we were very clear in warning them that this was something their customers might not appreciate. But that aside, that's really where a lot of things go down in flames. Perception is so much more important sometimes than the actual result. Most people can't judge a project as successful other than by appearances and delivery date. Well, you know, and I think what you're touching on here is it's just because the software works and it's bug-free doesn't mean the project's going to succeed. Exactly. That just means that at the uh, the last mile is covered, in right. other words, yeah. I have four rules that I live by now, and that, that if, uh, every one of them has many has produced many scars when I've erred from it. And they're kind of conveniently ranked by the one-word rule, the two-word rule, the three-word rule, and the four-word rule. And and if you don't mind, I'll go through them real quick. Sure. So the one-word rule and the most important thing is status. If you're not paranoid early, you're going to be unhappy later. Right. Um, You've got to check status constantly. You've got to verify things. What doesn't get checked doesn't get done. The second rule is never guess. Never assume. Because okay. when you assume... <laughs> <laughs> go for it. Go for you it. make an ass out of you and me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true because when you assume, you're, you're breaking the third rule as well, which is don't be wishful. And I know don't's a contraction, so don't, don't talk to me about that. But in our vernacular, don't's one word. So don't be wishful. Um, if it's not done when the coding is done, it, 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 well, let me say that again. A project is not done until after the coding is done and lots of other things happen. Right. So if you think the customer will appreciate the fact that you're done coding, but they're not going to be able to use it for another three months because you, you know, screwed up the QA plan, they're not going to be. I think the word done is just an evil word. You just, because the expectation, they done for a developer and done for a, a business owner are totally different things. Well, yeah. th- there has to be no equivocation. If I ask if something's done, the answer is either 
no, and this is why, or yes, with no other words. Yes, buts. No yes, buts. No, there is no such thing as yes, but. Um, wishful is really the thing that kills most people and most projects. Um, status is something that everybody does. They just don't do it as well as they should. Right. And they don't do it early. Most people get deep down in the status late in the project when it's much harder to fix things. Well, it, yeah, status tends to be bad news. Right. right. Well, not in our organization. We've, we've, got a, uh, we've got a system now where everybody that works in all the companies I'm associated with where no status, no check. Interesting, yeah. We don't, we don't Amazing how you. motivated people are. Well, you don't get paid if you don't put in a status. And right. if you don't put in a status, then we assume you were not working. So we can charge you vacation or we can just call, call you a job abandonment. It doesn't come down to that because we look people in the eye and say, I will fire you no matter how brilliant you are and no matter how important you are if you don't send me the status regularly. Right. Um, the never guess thing is you, you just got you to gotta say, show me. If you, if you have an opinion and no proof... Well, I'll pick my opinion over your opinion any day. Hmm. Okay, so we, we just kind of torture people over their guesses uh, and say, okay, well, show me that to make sure that they're not guessing. Don't be wishful is all about if you, if you haven't confirmed it with the customer, and the customer could be me, if you haven't confirmed it with them, it's not true. You have no, you have no basis of really believing that the customer understands that this is going to work this way unless you've shown it to them and explained it to them and demoed it to them. Right. And then the last rule is probably, I won't say it's the most important, but it's the one that starts the seeds of destruction, which is no spec, no estimate. Uh, I love it. Yeah. yeah I, I, will, I will work for you, T&M, for, from now until the end of time and happily rewrite, recode, rework. T&M, define that. Time and materials. It Just means that, fill them by the hour. It means you, you hire a landscaper, they come in, and they do the work. And if they work for 50 hours because you told them to dig up the same tree five times and move it, you pay for it. Yep. Fixed bid. I want a house. Okay. You're never going to build a house on T&M. If you do, your builder will love you, okay, because you'll never be done and it'll cost you billions of dollars. Yep. But a lot of people want a fixed bid price when they give a T&M spec. Yes. I'll give you an example. I have a client um, that we dealt with a couple of years ago. Good client, but we had to educate them. They walked us through their existing application and told us what they didn't like about it and then expected a fixed bid proposal for the new system. And I said, okay, so I understand what you want, but here's an analogy. If I walk you through my house and I comment that I don't like the size of this bathroom, I don't like the type, this type of countertop, I think this floor is creaky, I don't like the overall feng shui of the, of the building, can you actually go and build me a house that will make me happy without a, an, uh, an architectural diagram, without a specification of what materials would make me happy. Right. All you know is what I'm annoyed by. You don't know the exact specifications of the thing that would make me happy. Right. So you can't fix bid it. And if you do, we're both going to be unhappy at the end of it because you're going to underestimate and I'm going to overestimate and our expectations will never meet. The reality is going to hit you eventually, but That's you're, right. you're never actually going to be happy. Well, it's usually when the court order comes. Nice. Um, but if, if we, as a, as a group, developers, uh, engineers, architects, can rein in that failure rate, okay, if we can rein it in so that we fail 5% of the time, think about the productivity boost to the, to the country, to the world. Mm, sure. You know, if we can get it down to where project failure is a rarity instead of, uh, you know, almost a certainty in some cases. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, 
who bring you this message. One of the drawbacks of using third-party tools is that you have to deal with numerous vendors, so say goodbye to consistent quality and service level. Fortunately, that's not always the case. Our friends at Telerik, for example, are a true one-stop shop for .NET. They recently rolled out their Q1 release, which is just packed with good stuff. Start with Silverlight, an incredible grid, chart, editor, and everything else. A whole suite. A 3D chart, yes, 3D in Silverlight is coming soon as well. The traditionally strong ASP.NET Ajax suite got even cooler. New controls, Visual Studio extensions for quick project kickstarts, new examples and skins, you name it. And how about web testing? Yep, Telerik is now offering a powerful solution for automated testing of modern Ajax applications. It's called Web UI Test Studio and is developed in partnership with Art of Test. Then comes reporting, WPF, WinForms, but I'm running out of time. So just go to www.telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com, and be amazed. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Communication is so key, and, and I remember uh, getting a call one day for, on this project I was working on. And, uh, hey, what's up? And the guy said, it doesn't work. And I said, well, can you be a little more explicit? He said, it doesn't fucking work. <laughs> That's very explicit. <laughs> thanks for the input. Yeah, thanks. That's awesome. Hey, I'll get right on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how about you make it work? How's that? <laughs> yeah. How about that? Yeah. Um, the other thing, I mean, estimation is a tough thing. You, you, it's always possible to misestimate. But one of the things you do is you tell people not only what you're going to do, but what you're not going to do. Right. So in other words, if I give you a spec, I'm going to give you everything this document says and nothing more. In other words, if it's not shown or, or described in detail in this document, it will not be done. That puts great focus on the person reading the spec. Yeah. And you need to be fair with them and say, you have to understand that this is exactly what I'm building and it... If, if when we're done, this is going to cost you X thousand dollars. And if you expected something else to be in there, it won't be. Yeah, just expect it won't be there. And if you're going to add it later, it's going to cost more. Right. And you have to be very explicit about um, CYA. You have to cut, I mean, it, it sounds bad, but you have, to, you have to destroy any hope they have that you are thinking the way they're thinking Yeah. by ex- being explicit. We will... I mean, web projects, we state explicitly what resolutions we will support and none others. Right. What browsers versions we will support and no others. What, um, what back-end database versions and libraries we will support and no others, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the challenge is actually getting specific enough that you cover all the details. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I find for everything you say you're going to do, you have to define one or two things you're not going to do. Right. In fact, if, uh, you end up with more things you're not going to do than what you are going to do. Right. And because if you, but I also find if you set expectations early, you get to a much better result. But a lot of people are afraid to set those expectations. They're afraid they'll lose the deal. Yeah. And and the deal can be working for your boss. It could be that they'll pick a different developer to work on this new feature, this new capability. But you don't want to. So there's always someone out there who's willing to bid less to do a bad job. Yes. Okay. Isn't that and awesome? Yeah. You know, it's it. It just seems to be the truth. And I can't tell you how many times I've said, "Oh, it's gonna that that project's gonna cost you eighty thousand dollars for that first phase," and they say ridiculous. They go off. They spend 
$30,000 twice. For nothing, yeah. And they get nothing out of it. Yeah. And then they, and then they have, you know, an axe to grind with someone overseas, and they've got a local buddy who they don't speak to anymore, and they're the godchild, they're the, their godchild is their, their kid, and, you know, it, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. And unfortunately, the road to heaven for a developer is paved with specifications. Yes. Well, and Bob can do it in access. Yeah. <laughs> this weekend. Yeah. Well, <laughs> go for it. You let me know I, how that works out for you. Yeah. Unfortunately, all widgets are not created created uh, exactly alike. What, what works well, what's suited well for one technology isn't suited well for another. And we definitely have a hammer and nail menta- mentality. If I'm... Uh, if I'm a, um, a rich app, internet application developer, I tend to see rich internet applications everywhere. Right. Yeah. If I'm a web developer, I tend to see ASP.NET develop or um, applications everywhere. So that's the problem. You need to first, I think, as a as a client, you need to first identify which technologies actually make sense and bring value, and then go to the experts in those technologies. Absolutely. Hey, you do a lot of offshore work. I mean, you, I know you do development here in, yep. in the U.S., but... Uh... Um, I, as part of Critical Sites, I run a, a team of about 30 people over in, in Egypt. Right. Uh, running out of Cairo, mostly. A couple people are up. Uh, actually, we had somebody up in Alexandria, but they were down back in Cairo now. But 30 um, people, you are not dabbling in offshore development. That's a I'm lot not. of work. And, and I'll, I'm actually willing to give away some of the, the, the hard-won secrets here if, if you guys want me to. Absolutely. Um. I've also got experience with Indian offshoring, but not through a team that we owned, more a team that we hired. So not employees of ours. The people in Cairo are actually employees. Okay. Um, and I've also got experience in, in dealing, and very good experience in dealing with a consultancy over in, in Egypt named Dashsoft. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got to pick your battles well. You have to pick the right people, um, which is you know true everywhere. But the secret to offshoring are all the rules I just gave you. Okay, so it's the same secrets as here. Right. But a bit more so. So so status. You have to set up a, a status system with people regularly. And and status is very status is very specific to not only the task but to the, the person doing it. So I'll give you an example. Um I you've had kids work in your yard probably. Okay. There are some kids you tell them what to do you leave them at 8 o'clock in the morning, and by 5 o'clock, they're done. They've done everything. They figured out problems. They pulled stumps you didn't know needed to be pulled. And, you know, they're just, they're just a machine. Right. And there's other kids where if you don't sit there and tell them which leaf to rake, they'll get it wrong. Yeah. So developers, they fall in the same kind of granularity. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter whether they're here or, in the US, uh, or somewhere else. And that is there are some developers who I can tell I want a system like this, and they go... And a month later, they're still on target. Right. As long and, as I haven't changed my And mind. arguably thought through the problem more than you have and have found right. opportunities you didn't know about. Exactly. And have, have checked resources and they can justify alternatives and they can talk about all sorts of things. Those are, those are incredibly rare people. Most of them run their own companies. Most of them have probably been guests on your show. And, and they're, just, they're just so rare. Well, those are rare gems whether they're here or there. It doesn't right. really matter. And in any industry. Yeah, yeah. So you can't treat everybody that way, though. No, not That's at all. That's the problem. So someone has to really, really, really earn the right. They don't get the benefit of the doubt that they're a one-month resource. In fact, I've only met a couple of one-month resources in my entire life because they almost have to be in the same mindset as you yeah. to, to get it. 
or they're going to be checking back with you more often than you check back with them. What's much more likely is you get developers who who call who fall into the one hour, four hour, eight hour, yeah, couple of days, full week to a month. So the majority of developers, you can give them a task, and in a day or two, they'll need guidance to make sure they're on the right track. Yeah, and, and it sounds like most of my experience talking to you, talking to Steve Forte and others, it's a daily scrum. Every day you're talking to these guys. But you're talking to some of them, you talk to twice a day? Um, we don't. We found that if you're a four-hour person, you can't work for us. Okay, right. So they're, they're there. I've met one-hour people. Wow. And when someone's mm. learning a new task, a new technology, you, we check on them. I might check on them hourly for the first couple of days just to make sure they, they, they have all the things they need. Make sure they're they, not churning. I, I didn't explain something badly, that kind of thing. Right. It's not micromanagement, it's coaching. Yeah. After that, I can check on them every, twice a day if it's an important task and I'm not willing to waste half a day because to make sure they, you know, again, I haven't, I haven't oversimplified things, that, that kind of thing. But if someone can't do a day's work without my intervention and stay on target, they can't work for me. Pat, have you, do you do project management as well? I mean, project management is a huge piece of this puzzle. I do. I pick my projects very carefully. Usually I try to t- get on the ones that I think are either in the greatest danger or have the biggest, um, biggest potential. Do you have any secrets to share about uh, good project management styles? Um, yeah, we have. Um, we, we've developed quite a bit. Uh, you, you know my buddy Bruce Baca. Sure. Uh, he's the CEO and founder of NTP Software, and that's the software company I'm associated with. Um, Bruce has got a lot of experience, and I've I've been able to mine a lot from him, and and we've also built up a lot of experience together working on critical sites. And what what I found is a format for status reporting that he actually came up with that's very useful, which is um, what did you do? What did you do today? So th- this is assuming the status is for the end of the day. What did you do today? Um, what did you get done? You know, I don't need details. I need to know I worked on the um, <clears throat> email messaging project for, you know, et cetera, and I got this this uh, library tested and, and, and checked in. Right. What did you do that you didn't plan on doing? In other words, who walked, what happened that you, somebody walked in your office and said, we got hit by a virus, I need you to go and check this. Right. And what did you plan to do, but you didn't get it done, and why? Yeah, and funny, that order of things is pretty much how you would explain that in the first place. Right. So that's the first part of it. Then the next part of it is, what do you plan to do over the next time period, tomorrow, next week, whatever? What do you need from others, and what are your problems? Right. That's my status. If I get that from everyone and I read it, I I can ignore half of them because half of them are doing what they're supposed to do. I can intercede to ensure that people get what they need. And I can corral anyone who's on the wrong track. Yeah. So I can be at TechEd and still manage projects. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it also, just thinking how brief that, that description can be. That's three paragraphs. Mm. Mm. And, you know, I, I, it also allows them to market to me and say, look at what I've done. Look at all these great things. It lets them complain to me and say, you know, I can't get... I can't get Joe to go and do what he promised to do. He hasn't got my domain ready for my testing. 
Right. And it, it gives me, it lets me see the turbulence in their life. If somebody is on a mission-critical task and they keep getting bothered by the same individual to do things they didn't plan on getting done, and I see on that other person who's doing the interrupting that their status report shows work being done by someone else, it helps me identify problems, helps me identify the, the stuff that you normally have to be in the, in the building to know. And I think this is the thing is, uh, with dealing with offshoring is you're not in the building. So right. all of those things that you pick up from wandering around, you've got to have alternatives for. Exactly. Well, actually, I'm glad you mentioned alternatives because one of the other th- key indicators of a really good developer and somebody who's going to save you yeah. is someone who actually considers alternatives. So, so, and this is a direct quote from Bruce, most developers or technical people are so thrilled that they come up with any solution to a problem they have that they're, they, they go and implement it. Yeah, that is, that's true. Just because there's one solution doesn't mean it's the only one. Well, yeah. actually, it turns out that let's say there's five different ways to do something. What's the odds that the one you came up with first is the, most, is the best? Yeah, almost zero. It's 20%. It's right. one in five. So you should think about alternatives, and you should war game, and you should... This is where Agile, this is where extreme programming comes in, where you have two developers on the same keyboard. Right. Because they will bring up alternatives. Yes. They will pause it. You know what? I think we should do that a little differently. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's a better solution. And so we do code reviews where a developer will review another developer's code. And I'll be honest with you, that's one of the things that we let fall off the plate more often than anything else. Right. And we also will, will not be above having a, an architect um, look over the code of a project to make sure that people are following the right, the right, right um, frameworks, the right um, methodologies. You really have to uh, not be beholden to your ideas, I mean, to be a really good developer. We've said this time and time again. You really have to slay that dragon, that ego. You know? Yeah. You've got to get used to people coming up with better ideas or improving your ideas? Well, not just that. There's also, there's another side to this, and, and this is more from the Veronese radio side. So Richard, Richard might relate to this very well. Sure. De- um, developers come up with the pride of accomplishment in, in, que- in solving a logic problem and making an elegant solution. Right. Network techies, plumbers, database guys, and, and, and I mean that with the, fir- yeah, I say that with the greatest of, of fondness since I'm, I'm a network guy myself. Uh, a closet network guy, they want to walk in the door, throw back their cape, and point to the registry setting that will solve the problem that the company has been dealing with for two days that no one else could figure out. Right. And then they want to, you know, disappear and play a game of Halo. Yeah. No, okay. and, you know, I, I know I'm doing an awesome job as an IT guy when my phone doesn't ring all day. Right. But it will anyways, because, you know, the people who run it, um, who, the people who use your network are so ingenious at finding ways to mess it up. Oh, Have yeah. you seen the TV show, I, The IT Crowd? Yes. Oh, my God, I love that show. <laughs> it's an English show. I think they only made – it's because BBC so weird. They did three shows the first season – or six shows the first season, six shows the second season. They're brilliant. I haven't seen them. You'll have to oh, download them. You have to watch them. But this um, is, this is a, this is a show where the guy answers the phone, tech support, have you restarted it? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so the problem with, with um, the, what we do is we give guidance to all, all techies, developers and network people. You get five minutes to guess. Yeah. You get five minutes, and I know that we said never guess, but we, you get five minutes to strategize and try things, and you must document everything you try so you can undo it. After that, you're, you, you're, you're back to scientific method. 
you're eliminating possibilities, and you need to get to the point where you've proven you haven't introduced any new problems. And if we have to, I mean, if you're going to sit on something for a day, we're eventually going to get a vendor in. I call Microsoft sooner rather than later because $150 support call for PSS is much cheaper than two days of a senior resource who's asking the most senior resource how to solve a problem. Right. And, and also not getting work done and not getting things developed and not getting things delivered. Well, so, and impairing the most senior resource in the process, right? Like, right. There's a terrible ripple there. You're not only not doing your work, you're impairing other people's work. Next time you're in a meeting, sit, around, sit back and look around and think about the hourly rates of everyone in the meeting. Mm-hmm. And then you'll come up with a, a basic, how much is this meeting costing per hour? Right. And I've been in meetings that were, were literally $20,000 an hour meetings because they, they had so many people of such high rank in a bank or some other organization sitting around. And most of them weren't mm. engaged in all the conversation. Of course not. So problems are the same way. I, I'm not going to incur $4,000 worth of downtime for a problem that um, PSS can give me a patch for tomorrow. Right. So it's those kinds of things. And well, and also just that ability to look outside. Why are we writing this? Hasn't this been done before? Is there an appliance that could do this? Like all of those, I will always take a fixed cost over variable cost when I can. Amen. But, but that goes against the cowboy attitudes that are mostly um, entrenched in, in, in the, the people, especially alpha geeks. Right. Especially people who take great pride in the technology, who you know, write their own stuff on the side, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and you yeah, want to write it themselves. They know that whole mentality comes from, I'm the smartest guy in the room. Right. Have you read Joel on software, Joel Spolsky's um, Smart and Gets Things Done book? No, I heard it was great, though. It's an awesome book. Um, the, um, Joel from Imaginets um, recommended it to me, and it's, it's really a good book because he talks about the fact that um, ego is a problem. And there's a arrogance to um, value factor. Right. And you have to make sure that you always are in balance. And one of the things we're finding in this economy is the ratio that's acceptable has, got, has dropped way down. Yes. Well, and, and the number of companies I've talked to where they have had done layoffs, and they didn't just lay off by seniority. The you know, last person hired is the first person to go. Mm-hmm. They made a spreadsheet. And it was, mm. there was a salary and there's sort of a productivity factor. But you know, the, and you just hit it on it, it's an arrogance factor. Mm-hmm. You know, people call it, you know, how easy is to get along with it. So it's really an arrogance factor. It's the PIA factor. Yeah. Well, the ass factor. <laughs> well, and I, it, there was a time when we were doing, eva- uh, Steve Forte and I were doing evaluations. We talked about a guy who, who uh, we described him as the cow who gave twice as much milk and kicked over one of the cans. So in the end, we had same amount of milk as any other cow, but also a big mess on the floor. Mm. <laughs> I like that one. That's a good one. Yeah. I'm sure people enjoy being categorized like that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen here, Bessie. <laughs> so what do you guys look for in a spec? I mean, how do you – can you look at a specification and decide whether or not it's, it's, um, it's hopeless or not? Uh, just completeness, you know, thoroughness. It, what you, when, you, when you have questions – when you read a spec and you have a question that is obviously going to impact the time, you know, the, if I if I can't think of anything that uh, has been left out, you know, it's it's just got to be complete. You know, obviously some things are going to be left out, but they're they should be trivial. So I have a, a a scale of four levels or five levels actually. The first level is is scary of specification, 
And if it, uh, if you don't mind, do you mind if I share that with you? No, please. So the first level is someone comes to you and says, I have an idea. And in that case, you should either run or verify they have a very hefty bank account. Right. <laughs> okay. Because there's no way to spec, I have an idea. Okay. There's no way to fix bid, I have an idea. You can work on it. You can get it done. But it's going to be a circular development, not a waterfall. Because you don't know what you're, you don't know what you're going to finish uh, do until until it's done. So that's something that I see a lot. You know, entrepreneurs will come up and say, "Hey, I have an idea. I want to just build this thing, and it'll it'll put Google out of business." But mm. I haven't written anything down yet. Mm. So uh, the next level is a high level requirements document, and it reads like a wish list. There's no details, and there's lots of unanswered questions. This is the brief email paragraph that says, "I want to build a system that does this, and you know, sells five products a day, and." It's it's good to tell you what they're hoping to get, but it doesn't tell you anything about what an acceptable solution would be. Then there's the details requirements document, which would actually be enough detail on what they're willing to accept and not accept that lets a techie, an architect, go off and write the functional and technical specification. And then and that's usually when you torture somebody, they can get you to that point. But if they're not technical, they don't have the ability to go to the next level. Right, to actually get down to that much detail. And the next two documents are really where the rubber meets the road. And I usually like to combine them. It's a functional spec, which like is mock-ups of the UI, use cases, um, and, and could allow a fixed bid project with a lot of assumptions. And then there's a technical spec, which is the blueprint for the application. There's no unanswered technical questions and would actually allow a fixed bid project. Typically, the functional spec with the technical spec completed allows you to say, yeah, this would take us X weeks and the cost you this much money based on that number of weeks. And that's really the, the, the gambit. And occasionally, I'll meet somebody who actually works regularly on, on you know, fully specced projects based on those definitions. And I also noticed that the success ratio on those is much higher. Yeah, this dedication to the specification, to spending time to getting it done right, ends projects sooner when they need to be ended, but more more significantly causes the conversations that sets people's expectations reasonably. Exactly. Pat, do you speak about this topic, uh, software project failure, and uh, if or do you have any white papers or resources people can? So I just pass did out? start a session on this exact topic. Um, and the, uh, the title of the session that I gave, gave at CodeCamp in uh, New Hampshire and CodeCamp in Boston last month is how to prevent project failure. And then I had another session on how to write specifications for survival and profit, but there was a little bit too much overlap. So I really can't present both sessions in the same event because there's just too much overlap in them. But um, I do, I blogged, um, I'm starting to blog again. I blogged three times last week. I'm going to blog this week. And I, I posted the uh, slides up on my blog at www.patrickhines.com. And Hines is spelled H-Y-N-D-S. In hindsight, that uh, that should be pretty good. <laughs> no, no, I won't start the puns. Pat, that was very uh, funny. It was. Is there anything else that uh, we missed that you want to cover? We're just about out of time. Uh, no, I'm just happy to talk to you guys again. Um, I'm, I've been out of the community for probably over a year now. I'm back. I'm speaking at user groups and code camps and um, starting to blog again and, and trying to actually add to the to the conversation. Um, and I appreciate the time you guys have taken to have me on the show, and hopefully we can talk about less dry topics. I think it's an interesting topic, but it's a little bit heavy, heavy topic. Well, it's always good talking to you, Pat, and you always bring a, a variety of perspectives on a problem, so it's uh, it's always great to hear from you. Thanks. And uh, thank you again, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. Dotnet Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes,